It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. On today's show, Irish Times award-winning journalist Rosita Boland speaks to me about her brilliant book, Elsewhere. That's coming up later on, but before she's here, I should mention our competition. Fancy getting your hands on a luxurious chocolate hamper from Green and Blacks? Of course you do. The Irish Times has teamed up with Green and Blacks to give our listeners the chance to win a beautiful hamper filled with delicious products from their new Velvet range, ideal for all those indulgent moments. The Velvet edition of chocolate bars offer a variety of signature flavours for all tastes in a smooth, velvety finish. Dark chocolate, but not as you know it. The Velvet Fruit Pouches offer a completely new taste in chocolate, a luxurious melange of fruit and dark chocolate in two tempting flavours. Carefully crafted by expert taste specialists, Green and Blacks invites you to unwind and savour every bite while bringing your taste buds on a heavenly journey. Escape the ordinary with Green and Blacks. To be in with a chance of winning one of those gorgeous hampers, go to irishtimes.com forward slash competitions forward slash green and blacks 2019. Now you'll know Rosita Boland as an award-winning journalist. Her groundbreaking Anne Lovett story last year was so widely shared and read and it rightly got her the title of Journalist of the Year last November. But in the last 30 years, Rosita has also visited some of the most remote parts of the globe, carrying little more than a battered rucksack and a diary. She didn't even have a camera for most of this time, which is kind of amazing. Documenting nine journeys from nine different moments in her life, her new book Elsewhere reveals how Exploring the world and those we meet along the way can dramatically shape the course of a person's life. From death-defying bus journeys through Pakistan to witnessing the majestic landscapes of Antarctica, Rosita experiences moments of profound joy and endures deep personal loss. Her book is a series of jaw-dropping, illuminating and sometimes heartbreaking essays. It's a book that celebrates the life well-travelled in all its messy and wondrous glory. Rosita joined me in studio to talk about the book and uh, I started by completely gushing over how brilliant it is because honestly, it is brilliant. Rosita, first of all, I have to say, even though you're my colleague and you're my friend and everyone's going to think I'm just saying this, I have to tell them I'm not just saying this. Your book is absolutely brilliant and I would urge everyone to read it. People who are into travel, people who much prefer a package holiday or a cruise, everyone should read it because it's so entertaining. So I'm just getting that out of the way. It's excellent. Well, that's so nice to hear all that. And actually, the thing I'm most looking forward to um, about this book being out is that I will get to go to festivals as a writer instead of as a reporter reporting on what's happening with my notebook. So 
that's what I'm looking forward to most. And then, so people know it's not just me saying it, you have had the most incredible reviews and they've been everywhere. They've been the Sunday Indo, the Indo, the RTE Guide. So there's all these diverse publications are all saying the same thing. They're saying this is full of humanity, so entertaining and it, it makes people just feel like they've been to the places you've been to. So the first thing I wanted to talk to you about, Rosita, was about your passion for travel and where that came from. So the book is called Elsewhere. One woman, one rucksack, one lifetime of travel. And from a quite a young age, you have had this very urgent, desperate desire to get off this island. Do you know where that came from? Well, we do live in a very small country and you have to take, obviously, a ferry or a plane to get off. So it's not easy to get away. And I don't know, I grew up in the west of Ireland and often went to the cliffs of Moher and up in that little tower, I would look out at the Atlantic and I knew that I knew that uh, we lived on the edge of the Atlantic and I just knew there was so much more of the world out there. And then when I was 19, um, I'm a student. I was to go interrailing around Europe with a friend and for a month and it was all arranged. I was to take the ferry over and meet her in Paris and she had been uh, au pairing in Germany and... So about a week or so, less than about a week, 10 days, not very long before we were due to go, I got a letter from her saying that, um, essentially saying that she was going to be dumping me halfway through the trip. Because I have to say, these are the days of letters. These were the days of letters. (laughs) Yes, the days of letters and that she had made a new friend um, who was also being an au pair in (laughs) the town she was in Germany and she was Finnish and that her new Finnish friend had invited her to go visit her. And she was actually, you know, sorry about it. But, you oh. know, really, the Finnish friend was much more interesting and exotic than spending two weeks with me. So um, there I had it. And so I read this and I was, uh, well, it was clear that either I it was too late to find anyone else to come with me. So I was either going to go for the two weeks and come back for the other two weeks, or I was going to go for two weeks and spend them with her having made my peace with her instead of wanting to kill her as I did (laughs) um, and see how I got on by myself. So we parted, we had a great time. We parted ways in Vienna. Um, I was still quite sore about it, as one would be, being ditched for a newer, more popular pal. Um, And I kept going and I spent, I went on to Italy and the first place I landed in Italy was Venice. And it was really early in the morning. I'd taken an overnight train it was really early in the morning. I came out. It was pouring with rain. I remember all these cats running everywhere. And between the rain falling out of the sky and the canals that were in there in the place of roads and everything that I saw in the shops was sort of glass. This this place seemed to be composed of water and glass. And it was just so incredibly beautiful and amazing. And even though it was raining, it was just, it was just there's just something really thrilling about stepping off a train in a new city in a new place and how could you possibly find one that's more amazingly visual than Venice and just wandering around my rucksack thinking oh my god it's incredible and to think that I think that I could be on the way back to Ireland now and I would be missing all of this because, so, you, were, because you weren't with your friend because you said I'm on my own I can't travel on my own yeah <laughs> and you know I had to it was back in the days when obviously it was pre-euro so every country had its different currency and I'm really bad at maths so that's a bit of a challenge in itself um, and just finding your way around. But, you know, you always meet people on the road and there's always people in hostels. And it was really, when I went back to Ireland, I felt really proud of myself because I thought I did it. I thought that it would be 
really too hard or that I couldn't do it. And I I did it and I loved it and I could do so it again. Was that the start? Like a feeling that was like, the start. I can do this on my own. I don't need to have a pal along. And in fact, I really enjoyed it. So was that it? The bug had bitten. I have to say, I really don't like that expression. Okay, it reminds me, it reminds me of fleas or something. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I suppose it's, I'm a curious person. And if, when you're in other countries, I mean, everything is new. And whether it's the smells, the food, the culture, what you're seeing. And I just loved all that. I mean, the reason I travel so much is because I love it. It's, it's, it's really simple. It's just as, it's really as simple as that. Well, the book is um, very beautifully constructed um, because it's it, each chapter has a word. It begins with a word that most people won't have heard of these very exotic words, and how you found those words for each chapter was because you you actually did a thing which I don't think many people do, which is read a dictionary from cover to cover and take the words that you really found that were very interesting to you out of it. Tell us about that dictionary. So when the year 2000 came around, as you'll remember, there were lots of millennium projects. There were millennium candles and millennium <laughs> forests and millennium, you know, the Y2K. And, you know, anyway, everybody's going mad. Um, <laughs> and I decided that I would set myself my own millennium project. So I bought um, the latest edition of the Chambers Dictionary, which was almost 2000 pages long. And I decided that I was going to read it from cover to cover. And I was going to mark all the words that really intrigued me or interested me or that I thought that I could maybe use if I was um, writing poetry in the future. Because back then I wrote poetry. I'm an out of order poet now for a very long time, (laughs) for about 15 or 16 years. And I I won't be writing any more poetry. But so over a year, I did read my way through this dictionary um, a few pages at a time. And what I did was I had a big uh, black notebook and I all of the words that I had uh, chosen I uh, wrote and kind of made it split it up alphabetically and I made my own dictionary of words and so there is words like um, I mean who knew that malamaroking was the carousing of sailors and icebound ships and that leal is true hearted and faithful and to to guddle is to fish with your hands in a creek and all of these amazing words that just sort of give you extra dimensions and um, I think as I wrote in the introduction you know sometimes I wrote poetry and poets are always searching for words that will go deep as wells so it was these words I collected in my dictionary because every time I went traveling I kept a diary I put them on the shelf and I came back I never reread them but I knew that they were there if I needed them. I never did anything with them. And I've been traveling since I was 22. So that's a lot of diaries and that's a lot of years in between. That's what I did. I took down the diaries and I started to read them and immerse myself back in the places and the years and the times that I was there. Well, tell us about some of those places because you have been everywhere. But let's start with somewhere that that I suppose a lot of us have been to and lived and worked in um, over the years is London. So you were there uh, when you met a very interesting, a lot of this book is full of characters really and I think one of the things you love about travel are the people and the, that you encounter along the way. And you met this very interesting couple when you wanted to get a set of bookshelves. Tell us that story. So again, back in the pre-IKEA and pre-internet <laughs> era when you uh, when you wanted a piece of furniture, you didn't go to IKEA or didn't go to, uh, you know, 
sharing sites. Uh, you looked in, if you were in London, you looked in Loot, which was a newspaper that advertised, it was basically ads, it was everything from, you know, jobs to furniture to, you know, decorating to buying puppies and all sorts of things. So I worked in a publishing company. I had lots and lots of books and I didn't have any bookshelves and I'm a very tidy, ordered kind of person. I like order. So the books everywhere were driving me mad. Um, so I picked up loot and uh, neither myself nor my flatmate had a car, of course. Um, so I needed uh, I needed something with free delivery, which actually pretty much lots of people offered back in those days. It kind of it seems incomprehensible now. But this is how this is how people bought things <laughs> back then. Um, so I found I was living in Camden Town at the time and I found a uh, I found an ad for a set of bookshelves in uh, Primrose Hill, which is not very far away. And it had free delivery. So I rang the number and um, I sort of vaguely registered that the man seemed old, but I was 24 at the time. And you can't even imagine being 30 when you're 24 so we made an arrangement that I would come at 11 o'clock on Saturday um, and if the shelves were satisfactory, they would drive me back to Camden Town with them. So I duly turn up at the time at 11 o'clock at this sort of red brick mansion mansion block of flats, apartments. Um, I ring the bell and I go up in the lift and I, as directed, I knock on the door left from the, from the lift and the door opens immediately and... It opened so fast that I knew that the it could only have been opened that quickly if the the person who opened it was standing at it waiting for me to be there. So that was the first thing that struck me. And the second was there was two, a couple, they were probably in their 70s, but I've always been very bad at people's ages. And it was 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning and they looked like they were dressed to go to the opera or to a really fancy dinner. Um, the woman had this long taffeta skirt on and the man had a shirt and a cravat and he was all, you know, they looked like they were dressed up to go somewhere. And it just struck me as odd. Um, so then they, so my coat was taken and then they proceeded to give me a tour of the entire apartment, which was not very big. It was a one bedroom apartment. But they showed me their kitchen. They showed me their bathroom. Then they showed me their bedroom. Um, I stared into this from the door and the bed had a red candlewick bedspread on it and you could see a pyjama leg sticking out from under the pillow. And there was a reproduction of Constable's Haywain over the bed and two kind of Spartan lockers. And I'm just standing there thinking, why are they showing me their bedroom? And I'd never bought anything through the small ads before. And I thought, well, do you get a tour of everybody's home <laughs> when you go to buy something? So we went and went into the living room and they showed me the shelves and they were absolutely fine. And I really didn't know what was going on. And then they asked me if I would like a glass of sherry. <laughs> so, this is 11 o'clock in the morning. Well, it's probably so. 10 past 11 by then. Okay. It's not noon yet, which is when, it's, like, you know, when uh, it's an acceptable no, it's, time. <laughs> it's early. So the sherry comes out and I'm invited to sit down. And it's clear that the shelves are not going to be delivered anytime soon. And um, so they start to grill me about, you know, my life. They, they know, obviously, from my accent that I'm Irish. You know, how long have I been in London? What do I do? Do I miss my family? Um, do I like London? And um, on and on it goes. And I I just, I'm kind of disconcerted. And also I realised that the door was locked and bolted behind me when I came in. And I keep, I keep wondering, why do they show me their bedroom? Like, is there some code in this ad that I didn't get? And 
you know, I thought I was buying bookshelves, but I mean, what, what, like what, what? And nobody knows where I am. And I, my imagination was running away with me. And anyway, so their names were Henry and Margaret. And Margaret asked me how I spelt my name. And I spelled it for her. And then she said, we never had a Rosita before. And at this point, I am staring at her really hard, thinking, what the hell is going on? I have no idea what is going on. And um, she took out this notebook and said that they had had another Irish person lately with an Irish name and they didn't think they'd spelt it correctly. And so they spelt the name Aoife phonetically back to me and I gave them the correct spelling. And uh, I just kept staring. And at this point, she said, we never had a Rosita before and asked me how to spell my name. And so their story then began to emerge in bits and pieces. Um, they had met each other late in life in another part of England in some town whose name I forgot as soon as I heard it because it was unfamiliar to me. Um, neither of them had children, but they both had a property. So they lived in her house for a while. And then they decided that they would sell both properties and make a new life um, and come to London where the bright lights were and the shows and have, you know, in their retirement years, have this kind of glittering, sociable life going to the West End and being in London. So they bought this apartment in Primrose Hill, but they didn't know anybody in London. And they did go to shows, but you can't go to shows every day of the week. And they didn't know anyone. They didn't even know their neighbours in their in the apartment block. But then they discovered loot and they discovered that it was free to advertise and they had too much furniture with them because they'd had two properties. So every second week they would advertise a piece of furniture for sale and offer free delivery and wait for the phone to ring. And so as I was listening to them, I realised that their social life was the people who came to view the items for sale and they spent time with them. They asked what their names were, what they did for a living and Margaret wrote all these details down in this notebook which she showed me and I'm sitting there on this couch, age 24, and they're they're pointing out the absences in the room, like over there was the China cabinet and Susan Suzanne from Ballam took the towel rail and she was a social worker. And it was, I mean, it's like a play. It, it, it was, it, there was just something so moving and kind of, uh, I don't know. I mean, when, when I, you know, when I did get back with the shelves, they Thank did. God you got back safely anyway. They weren't they, also chopping up people. And they, 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 and they drove me across London. At the time, I felt really quite disturbed and I thought it was very sad. Um, now, I think that they were being actually very resourceful. Mm. And um, and I realised, you know, why it was they had dressed up because I was their social occasion. So yeah. that made sense. That's an absolutely brilliant story. And far away from London in Pakistan, you um, one of the most gripping, there's loads of gripping uh, parts of the book and places like what I feel like is I will never go to 80% of the places you've been to probably. I don't have that wanderlust um, in me. But the great thing about your book is that I feel I've been there from reading. And one of the most gripping, vivid uh, parts of the book is this bus journey you took high up in, in Pakistan and the Indus Highway, I think it's called. And 
I mean, reading that, I was actually feeling quite sick and scared as as you hurtled along. Tell us a bit about that journey, because, um, you know, when you get on one of those rickety buses, I have been on a couple in India, so I have kind of done it. But I don't know how you did this journey. But tell us about it, because it was quite terrifying. It was terrifying. Um, I took a bus from Gilgit in northern Pakistan to Skardu. And Skardu is the capital of Baltistan, and that's where... Most of the um, highest mountains in the world are. It's where K2 is and it's where people come to um, climb mountains. But it was out of season and I was the only Westerner, the only woman, the only tourist. Um, So the road had only been built 10 years before because I was there in 1995 and the road had only been finished in uh, 1985. And it had the name of the Indus Highway. And I had soon learned that in Pakistan, the word highway doesn't resemble anything as we would understand as highways or motorways or dual carriageways or any of those kind of things. So I suppose, first of all, the local transport in, you know, countries like Pakistan and India, certainly at that time, were uh, they were very clapped out, you know, buses that go on long beyond the point when they really are, uh, they should be retired. So it means that the tyres are bald, that, you know, the brakes aren't the best. And obviously, uh, every single bus I ever took in Asia had many, many more passengers than there were seats for. And every roof had was packed with cargo, which means that you're, you're looking at something that's top heavy. So about an hour or so out of Gilgit, Um, We started to hit this Indus Highway and the Indus Highway was turned out to be a track, uh, unpaved um, track, and it was bordered on one side. So I was sitting on the right hand side and I had a view down to the gorge, the Indus River, which gives the road its name. It was hundreds of metres below, so far down that it looked, even though I knew it was half a mile wide, it looked like a goat track. That's how high up we were. And on the left, there was sheer um, cliff and mountain and every so often along the way, there were kind of groups of men who, you know, were living in tents there. And their one job was to clear the road of the rock falls that were happening all the time. And it was absolutely terrifying because I knew how overloaded the bus was. Um, and, it, you know, there were hairpin bends and it was it was absolutely I mean, it was it was almost violent, the landscape. It was so everything was vertical and the sky was a strip, like a runway far above. And I began to realise that I, I was doomed, basically. I couldn't get off. There was there was nowhere I could get off along the way that I was going to have to stay on this terrible bus. And I just began to feel more and more and more terrified. And then at one point, we stopped for a while and there was a fresh big rockfall in front of us. Um, and there was a three or four men trying to clear it and after a while the bus driver sounded the horn and I said to my companion I said, why, why is he why is he doing that you know I mean it was clear that we were waiting for the rockfall to be cleared before we could go forward and the man sitting beside me said oh this isn't good he said you know we uh, we can't we need to go onwards because we can't travel travel this road in the dark and However horrendous <laughs> the whole thing was, the idea of going forward in the dark just made me, I actually thought I was going to, I, 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 my hands became clammy and for the first and only time in my life I could feel this trail like a snail climbing up my spine. This just, this, <laughs> this, this sort of, you know, capillaries of fear 
um, and terror, it is actually almost, I did feel almost paralyzed. I, you know, I should really got off the bus, but I couldn't move. I literally could not move. And he went up and conferred with the people clearing the rock fall. And there was a tiny space and um, he came back and then it came clear that the plan was he was going to drive. So the two right hand, the front right hand and the back right hand wheels were going to stay on the road. And then the the left hand, he was going to drive up at an angle onto the, onto the, to get past. And there was so much cargo on the roof and I was on the right looking down at the <sighs> river and I thought I was going to die. I really did think I was going to die and it was absolutely terrifying. I thought I was going to black out. I could just see it all. I could, I could, I, I could imagine, you know, the wheels losing purchase and that we were going to topple over because gravity was just going to do the rest of it and we were going to fall far down and was terrifying and we got past that so when I got to Scardu I promised myself that I would not leave by way of the Indus Highway I was not sure how I was going to get out of that place but I was not making that return journey and that itself is another story and is another story how you ended up going in this rickety tiny plane and and taking ages to get on that and I would urge everyone to get the book to read it The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Now, one of the things that's been said in people talking to you about this book is the kind of um, issue of you travelling alone to so many places, which you did. And which if people aren't don't have partners or travelling companions, people do. But it's often seen, especially for a woman, as something very unusual to do or certainly risky to do. What's your take on that idea? Well, it's it's always a personal choice. But for me um, and also a lot of the journeys I went on were for months at a time. And it, it'd be very difficult to get somebody to come with you for six, eight months at a time. Um, so it's always been really simple. I've always wanted to travel. And um, what's the alternative? Uh, stay at home, not go anywhere, not do anything. And um, so for me, for me, it's never been difficult. So I've set off alone, but I've I've met people along the way. You know, I met met an ex fiance and <laughs> ex partner and friends for life, and you know, I met many many people along the way. Um, but there is a yeah, there there is some kind of um, there there is some sort of myth out there that it's dangerous for women to be traveling alone and. I think that I don't know where that comes from, um, but you just need to exercise common sense. And if you want to go, you go and you travel at the pace that's appropriate for yourself. Um, I don't know why society views it with such suspicion and why it seems to be so controversial that a woman saying she travels alone and enjoys it is is controversial because I have found I have found it to be like that and mostly actually men saying that. So mm. um, I don't know. Yeah, well, you don't find it um, risky or anything like that. You've had nothing terrible happen to you, really. You've, you've been in some hairy situations, let's put it like that, but nothing I have, really bad has happened. But to be honest, the, the, the hairiest situations have always been local transport, whether it's the local plane, the local bus, the local train or the local taxi. That Those have always been the most um, difficult experiences. And 
yeah, they've always been the biggest challenges. Um, the last chapter of the book, as I said, there's so many beautiful words that start each chapter and the, the name of the last chapter is Volatant, which means able to fly. Um, the whole book is beautiful, but I think that's a particularly lovely chapter and it really um, illustrates how often travel can be a place where people resolve things or they, you know, are maybe escaping something but come to a realisation about themselves from being in a place that's not their own home. And that was certainly the case for you. Can you tell us a bit about why you went to Bali and a bit about this chapter? Because it's very much about you coming to terms with something in your own life that was difficult. Yeah, so I went, uh, took six months um, off uh, at the end of 2015 and into 2016. And in the middle of that time, I was in Bali. And usually, you know, when I go traveling, there's no reason other than I just want to be elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but this time I ha- I did have a specific reason. And um, I had been uh, trying to be a, a parent through adoption. I'd been in that process for 10 years. And in the end, I'd aged out and I realized that, you know, I was never going to be a parent. And I realized that I needed I needed sort of time and psychic space to, you know, put between the life that I'd hoped I would have and the life that I now knew that I was going to have, which was one without parenthood. And for me, the place that I go is elsewhere because that's I know that. I know it's a really good place for me to be and um I just wanted to mend, I suppose, and come back to be able to come back to my life and my job and everything in Ireland. Um, but having put, yeah, I suppose the best way is really kind of a psychic space and between me and, you know, what I'd hoped my life would be. Um, so that trip was unusual in lots of ways because mostly... I kind of stick to one continent and explore that. But on that trip, I decided that I was going to try and uh, see as many friends along the way as possible. Um, And anyway, in the middle of it all, I landed in Bali, where I had never been before. And I went to Ubud on New Year's Day 2016. And I stumbled upon this absolutely extraordinary guest house with an amazing swimming pool. And I ended up, instead of staying three days, I I spent six weeks there. So I had an amazing time there. It was really extraordinary in so many ways and many things happened to me there. But the most extraordinary thing that happened to me was uh, the day before I left uh, Bali and Ubud. And I had just sort of been in a, I called it my, the, the name of the guest house was Narasoma. So I was describing it as my Narasoma coma in <laughs> Bali. And I was just swimming and eating and drinking and hanging out with all the friends I'd made and just enjoying all the palaces and the temples and the textile shops. And I was really lazy and did nothing. Um, But of course, Bali and Ubud is really famous for its um, massage therapy. It's famous around the world. People come there to teach and practice and learn. And there are something like I don't know, almost 200 um, spas around Ubud alone. So, and I hadn't been to any of them. Um, So I was about to leave and I thought, I really, you know, people come here from all around the world. I really should avail of at least one treatment before I go. So I thought I would go with the crowd and the the place the crowd were recommending was a place called Karsa, which is about an hour's walk away through the, the rice fields. And I managed to get, they only had one slot before I left, 
um, which was 90 minutes and it was called an intuitive heart massage. Um, I have no idea what that is, but it was the most, it was the choice of the crowd, the most popular treatments. So I thought, I'll have that. So I went off. It was the day before I left. I was to leave uh, Ubud and Bali. And I arrived at Carsa, which is this gorgeous, um, really beautiful in the rice fields with lily ponds and lotus and mosaics set into the paths and beautiful thatched um, buildings. And I was taken off for my intuitive heart massage. And I had my plan was that I was going to ask the masseuse what she was doing to explain to me. But actually... Of course, then she didn't speak English other than a couple that was of... for the best, I think, Rosita. It was probably Some for the best. Some things can't be explained. <laughs> so she had a few words like, you know, um, um, uh, hard enough or... I'd never had a proper massage before, so I had no idea if she, you know, if it was hard enough or, you know, too hard or not hard enough or... Anyway, so I decided I would just abandon myself to her. Um, so it began with, um, you know, I lay down and she had... I think it was, it was Reiki she was doing, so she was putting her hands over my... Um, back and it was really hot and humid but I could even in that heat I could kind of feel the extra layer of heat hovering over my body so she was it was just like white and then she started to massage me it was a bit like I described it as kind of like white noise it was everywhere and nowhere um, you know it wasn't making any difference to me and then and then she started to work on my shoulder blades one at a time and oh my god did I feel that it 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 felt like she was a surgeon and had actually opened up um, the area around each shoulder blade and was digging in there, looking for something, excavating, trying to pull at something. And I thought I was going to pass out. I was in so much agony. It was so painful and I was so taken aback. I mean, I thought a massage was, I don't know, people stroking you or, you know, you've, I'd have friends who said they fell asleep when they're being massaged. I felt like I was being tortured. And... Um, I don't know how long it went on. You know, it, it was meant to be 90 minutes. It could have been 10 hours or five minutes. But I was lying there. I thought I was going to pass out. It was excruciating pain. And then the pain stopped and I f her hands were sort of fluttering on my back. And I felt this tiny sort of almost insubstantial weight go from my shoulder blades down my back, down the center of my back in two different places. And then she was patting me on the forearms. I thought, hang on, her, well, her hands are here, but aren't, weren't they just on my back? And, you know, she indicated she was finished and she left me to shower and get dressed. I was lying there thinking, what, 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 what just happened? Like, what, what is that thing? What, what are those things that, what is that, what is that sort of weight? And then I thought, tiny weight. And I just thought, no, is it weight? Was it weight? I was going back over the experience. And I thought, oh, my God, it's it's wings. I feel like wings have just been pulled out of my body where they've been lying crushed and hidden and they've been they've been folded out and they've been laying down on my back. And I feel like I have wings and I just thought this is crazy. I mean, I don't believe in any of this stuff. This is, you know, I'm not a person who believes that you go for a massage and you feel like you've suddenly got wings. Um <laughs> But nonetheless, that is what happened to me in that uh, 
In Carsa, and, in that spa. And in that spa, that the wings happened, but also the swimming pool was a big part of it too because you didn't know how to swim until quite late. It's something you learned on your travels from one of your travelling companions in Australia. And so since you learned very quickly in one afternoon, because as a child you didn't go to swimming pools, it became a really nice thing for you to do. But this swimming pool in the guest house was also very therapeutic. Yeah. In coming was, to terms with what you had yes, described. Yes, I did. I, I, I love that pool. It was... It was this beautiful infinity pool. It was set among, you know, there were all these coconut trees and palm trees and they were like the, they were like the masts of this really beautiful ship and there was frangipani blossom and hibiscus and it was so beautiful. Um, it's the last part of the original monkey forest in um, Ubud and, and, you know, my guest house wasn't expensive but it was, it, this pool was like something you'd find in a five-star hotel it was just the setting was so glorious and there were little squirrels running up and down and beautiful birds flying around and I swam in that pool about three hours every day I would get up at dawn I'd always have it to myself I'd swim for an hour then I'd swim an hour later in the afternoon and then before dusk and it just was apart from the pleasure of it and the aesthetic beauty of it all I don't know it, it did I think it did help yeah or I don't know maybe I think it brought me to a place of acceptance I suppose Um, and tell me about that because I mentioned resolution at the beginning when I was asking this question so uh, you you talked about your struggle about wanting to become a parent knowing that that wasn't going to happen so how did you leaving Bali uh, how did you feel differently to when you had arrived I felt mended and I felt that I knew I could be, uh, not only was I going to be happy again in the future, I was already happy and that I had, I had accepted that this was, you know, this was, this was something uh, in my life that, you know, wasn't going to happen for me, but that I still had many, many amazing things in my life. And, and one of them is, you know, independence and freedom to go wherever I want to and whatever I want to do. And I can do my time is my own and that's a really rare privilege in this day where we're all so constrained for time and have so many demands on our time and families are wonderful but of course you know they take a lot of time and it was never my choice not to have my own family but it it, this is what happened and um, I can make all sorts of other uses with my time and enjoy my life which I certainly am doing Great um, <laughs> You mentioned Eat, Pray, Love in the uh, end of the book because that also ends in Bali and you'd never read that which is really interesting and you read it when you were, were there I think you know the different places you mentioned like um, uh, the guest house is called Narasoma Narasoma and then the spa is called Carsa like I think there'll be places like there was a Eat, Pray, Love tours of the world and I think there will be of elsewhere tours of the world as well where those places I'm going to go basically I'm going to stay there maybe not for six weeks but I'm going to go and swim in that pool because you make it so enticing Um, you've been to Antarctica you've been to all these incredible places. Have you got a place that, apart from Bali, because that sounds like it really was a very almost spiritual experience for you. I know that's not your, the kind of person you are, but what, where it, for you in the nine journeys that you describe in this book is the place that you, you know, think most fondly of or have most um, best memories of, would you say? Oh, that's a kind of an unanswerable question because uh, I think each of the places that I wrote about in yeah, in the book, you know, whether it's Pakistan or Japan or 
Peru, they were each part of longer journeys because my journeys were usually six to eight months. Um, but because of chronology, I could only put in one or two of those stories. So I actually loved Colombia, which I haven't written about at all. Um, and Iran was amazing and Bhutan. Um, so I don't know, maybe I'll just have to write some more. Well, I want elsewhere part two <laughs> because I need to travel through your words because I'm definitely, like you say, I am I have two lovely children, but they do kind of eat into your ability to just jet off somewhere. Um, but you are letting us know what those um, adventures and journeys are, are like. Just to say, finally, in the last chapter, you also talk very well about the expectations on women and how, you know, if you don't have children, if you aren't in a long-term relationship, that somehow you put it as failing a test we never knew we had to take. Um, tell me a little bit about that in terms of now where you are um, in the world and what you'd like people to know about <laughs> the idea of often people are very, um, you know, say really silly things to people who don't have children or expect that there's this sadness um, where there might not be. Well, I did write in the book that if you if you remember nothing else about this book, um, please don't ask people you don't know if they have children because um, you never know the the reasons for that and frequently they can be painful. I, I never ask that question of other people. Um, it's usually people who already have children who ask that question of others. And of course, there are people who are childless by choice, but they're very proactive in volunteering that information, I've also observed. So, yeah, um, I had to figure out how I was going to respond to that question that I get asked all the time, as women do. And in the beginning, I used to just say no. And then I figured out a way to deflect the questioning. And it was no, but not for lack of trying. And um, that's usually just enough information for the questioning to stop. Um, yeah, so it's really it's a very it's a it's a very private, personal question. And it's really none of anybody else's business asking people they don't know if they have children. So. Hopefully people who read the book will remember that. <laughs> great. And listen, I should also say there are beautiful love stories throughout the book too. And you manage this great trick, Rosita, of revealing a certain amount about yourself and about those love stories, uh, but not everything. And I think that's really intriguing. Uh, but was that difficult writing about yourself? Because we know you as the award-winning journalist who, for example, did um, the Anne Lovett story last year and lots of other brilliant work. And you don't tend to be talking about yourself. Was that difficult in writing this book that you had to kind of you know, reveal some things about yourself that maybe you wouldn't have done in any other capacity? I think what was hard was kind of just suppressing the reporter in me because I'm always writing other people's stories. So um, when I started working on the book, you know, I was kind of like I wasn't, uh, I was sort of reporting on myself. And of course, that was not very interesting at all. Um, so I kind of finally figured out how to do that. But yeah, I mean, you know, the book spans a period of 30 years and we all go through many experiences in 30 years and I couldn't have written what I did write about if I wasn't far past those, um, you know, how I felt about those things that happened uh, and in a really good, good place. And also the three, my three former partners, I went to each of them um, before I submitted the manuscript and showed each of them the chapter in which they featured and asked their permission to uh, you know, to to do this. And if, if there was anything they wanted me to change, um, that I would see what I could do. And two of them were so fine with it. They wanted me to use their real names, but I've actually used all of them. Uh, they all have pseudonyms. And I felt really 
great about that because as a journalist, I always try and take care of the people that I, you know, report on because nobody ever embarks on a relationship thinking they're going to one day feature in a memoir. So for me, it was really important that the people that I wrote personal, intimate things about were okay with what I wrote and they were. And I have to ask you then, where next, Rosita? Where are you off to? Because you always have to be elsewhere. So what is in your next travels? I haven't figured that one out yet. Um, but I, one thing I would love to see, which I've never seen, is I would love to see the Northern Lights in Scandinavia. And what I, I think I love most about that is that you can't predict that you're going to see them. So I love the uncertainty of it. And if you do see it, it it'll be a gift. Um, so I really, yeah, I'd really like to see that. Well, I think your book is a gift um, to all of us. It's wonderful. As I said, it has had rave reviews. I can't wait for part two. But in the meantime, enjoy all the festivals. And and, and like you said, going to, to be the writer rather than or uh, the, the interviewer of people is going to be quite a good experience. And I hope this has been a pleasant experience. Thank you, Roisin. <laughs> And that's it for today. Buy that book. It's on all good bookshops. And actually, there's an amazing display in Hodges Fidges where you can see the rucksack. I think it's 35 years old, the rucksack she brought all over with her. Um, you can see that in the window and you can buy the book and give it to your friends, whether they're travellers or not. Everyone will enjoy it. So thanks very much to Rosita for speaking to me today. And before we go, don't forget to enter our Green and Blacks competition and you can be in with a chance of winning a delicious hamper. Go to irishtimes.com forward slash competitions forward slash green and blacks 2019. And remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. Also, we do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time. So if you like what we do, then head along to iTunes and give us a review. The podcast is produced by myself, Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.